Hello and welcome. So I'm excited to welcome today to our uh, series, um, Melanie Oziv. So Melanie is joining us from Barbados in a much better weather and, uh, and the ecosystem that we are here in London, but I'm very excited. So just a couple of notes about her fantastic bio and achievement. So uh, Melanie Oziv is an award-winning business strategist that has been working with global organizations and clients to identify strategical priorities and initiatives, especially focused on revenues and sustainable growth. She is the co-founder of the Black British Business Awards um, that was created in 2014, and she's been writing for publications like African Post and Management Today. So she's um, has a fantastic background as well as a British entrepreneur and author, but as well with the Kerry Evans background. And that has uh, both uh, Canadian and Trinidad and Dominican heritage. And um, I think what is interesting, I always love to touch the education background. So besides being working, collaborating with publications like African Post and the Creative Industries Federation, and as well a professor in Alt International Business School in London, she's been as well studying uh, some of the areas that are key for our times, which is quite interesting because the background uh, of Melanie is in philosophy and uh, as well in um, a lot of areas in business, of course, and uh, management, but it has all this different broader uh, capacity that is quite unique. And of course, she's been working with companies quite big, um, so uh, with brands like IBM, Ernest & Young, and um, as well uh, leading some global strategies for these brands and, and media. So a, a lot of other things that I can highlight, but I want to highlight these things. And I think particular the the she's the chair as well of the Black British Business Awards and as well the executive producer of the Woman in the World Festival, a global gender equality festival occurring uh, with over 2 million women in 50 cities and five continents. And uh, she's been... Uh, collaborating with BBC and a lot of different other organizations. So I want to welcome to our series. There's a lot of things I could be reading, but I will put all of these in the notes of the interview, but it's important to contextualize. Welcome to our series, Melody. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time. I think we initially met, gosh, must have been at least 10, maybe 10 years ago. Like we had, like we touched base at um, our school. Uh, it was university um, in Marlebone. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Long time ago. <laughs> I'm telling so, you, like the networking is real. Like that's what, everyone thinks networking is so transactional that you you know you have to kind of transact and go. I'm going to meet this person and then we're going to do this right now. And actually, that's just not the way it works, is it? You just kind of hold interesting, hold interesting people close. <laughs> no, no, fantastic. And I think, like you mentioned, sometimes we meet someone and then after a couple of years, it changed our life or we do something <laughs> very big with, with the person. And then you never know. <laughs> but that is the beautiful life as well. So, uh, Melanie, I, I want to start uh, by your background because it's very unique and very wealthy because you have this wealth of experiences, cultural background of uh, even countries cultures, which is quite unique because very few people, I think people don't understand how this is beautiful, but as well how this is complex because uh, growing in London, there is an ecosystem in itself. And then Canada, Trinidad and Tobago, now you are in, in Barbados, which is a great place as well. So I want to start by this background and how this made who you are, because I think sometimes people miscalculate. And of course, we have all these uh, issues 
with, uh, well, this is not new. I think in the history of mankind, we had all these issues about looking at different cultures or one culture that is prevalent to another one. Even for instance, in terms of women, if you go to the, the, the prehistory, the women were matriarchal in some parts of history. They were actually leading society. So then, unfortunately, <laughs> we regress in other areas. So I would like to give a bit of background on that because I think it's quite beautiful and special. Uh, honestly, I, I, I don't, I cannot take credit for it. I think it was my mother I has to take credit for it. She is, um, I was born in London, but then my mother um, and father immigrated to Canada. And so I was raised predominantly in Canada, but I actually only received my Canadian citizenship in my twenties. I had always had my UK and, and European citizenship. Uh, that was, mom said, I know you're going to go back and you know, you should always keep this because you are, you love the UK and you have family in, in Europe, particularly in, in Switzerland and in France. And so I think from that perspective, my mom just kind of opened up my world to, she, as a child, I, in Canada, you had the option of being educated in French or in English. So to do all of your schooling in either French or English. So not learning French as a course, but actually learning math, science, everything in French. And mom enrolled me in that from a young age, from the age of five. And so I, you know, I grew up Francophone. I, 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 and some of the key concepts in my mind are still kind of and I, I have them in, I say them in French in my mind and I have to kind of translate them into English uh, sometimes it comes out in the way that I speak but from there it the kind of the world is your oyster right they always say that once you have a second language then you pretty much have the world and moving to the UK was actually quite different because I was always used to navigating the world at least bilingually and then I went with the UK only focusing on English I was like ooh, this is a lot you know, <laughs> this is a lot, but I think it fosters multiculturalism when you when you have that second language, third language, fourth language, and that's something I'll always miss um, in regards to being part of the European Union. Not yeah. to be too political, of course, <laughs> in these political in these political times, but that is, you know, I think that all of us can acknowledge that there are things that we will miss, um, whatever side of the coin you fall on, and that's one thing I definitely miss. I miss. Um, the students in my class, sometimes, you know, they'd be from France or from Germany, but it wouldn't mean that they were just speaking French or their Francophone that, you know, they often knew not just one other language, but three other languages. And um, they would always love my Canadian accent. And I was like, do you not know that how much we love a French accent? Like, do you not, what are you doing here? We love accents. Um, so yes, but that being said, uh, back to your original question sorry <laughs> which no, i love no, it's beautiful i like that <laughs> multiculturalism is just it's always been part of my world and canada has been a great kind of breeding ground for that and um, in the sense of multiculturalism being our actual political philosophy on the ground so versus kind of melting pot or um you know americans have more of a melting pot where it's you're african-american you're japanese-american where canadians are more multicultural where it's, you know, you are still, um, it, it allows more of an identification with your kind of the country that you've immigrated from because Canada is such a young country with so many immigrants. Oh, that's amazing. So, so I want to touch um, on this background of yours. You, of course, you have a very wealthy and very as well out of the box uh, education because you studied philosophy, political science, and then and French. 
and as well then you went hardcore into business and then you have a master degree as well in philosophy from Burbank so I would like to touch this because then you have a, on the top of that you have an entire business very corporate career with big brands so I would like to start with this because philosophy of course is more important than ever especially in our times of uh, of AI and technology where philosophy uh -huh. and ethics become super important to mostly manage global corporations but as well technology but this background and these studies because of course you have a very high profile and master degree in philosophy and as well all this background yeah it is um it's funny because i started off university thinking i was going to be a doctor so i'd actually started this university of toronto pre-med program when i was in high school uh they had this mentorship program where you would follow doctors and health professionals around and you'd be gaining a university credit while still in high school. And when I got to uni and I, I started, you know, kind of start thinking about physics and 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 math and 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 all of the other things and chemistry that I had to take, I didn't have a love for it. And so mid-year I changed into a philosophy degree. I think my mother almost flipped. <laughs> any any person knows like you, you think your daughter's gonna be a doctor and then all of a sudden she's like I'm gonna take philosophy. She's like philosophy what? what what kind of job do you get with me with a philosophy degree? But um, I loved it. I loved it so much. I remember I walked into my first year philosophy um, class and my philosophy professor he called out my name he was like you say baby and I, was, and I looked around and I was like, and this is like 150 students, right? So I was like, what, hello? <laughs> he's like, can you come to me after class? And I was like, well, okay, sure. And he's like, you're Melanie Sabi. And I was like, yes. He's like, what's your, you know, what's your, can you tell me your background? And I was like, yeah, my father is Dominican and my mom is Trinidadian. He's like, do you know what your name means in ancient Greek? And I was like, no. He's like, have you done the readings this week? I was like, no. And he's like, go back and do the readings and then come back to me. And then I found my name in the Apology, um, the Apology, a famous kind of a, a, a Socratic text. And it gave me the definition of respect and piety. And from there, it was almost like it was an identifying factor for me. Because, um, you know, I don't, my name is quite, um, it's very Dominican, um, so a small island in the, in the Caribbean. But it's actually, um, if you'll, you'll find it all over Quebec, um, so in the French part of Canada, and you also find variations of it in Portugal. But I did not know that it was actually an ancient Greek word for the feminine of the ancient Greek word for respect and piety. And from there, I think that philosophy had my heart because as a Caribbean person, um, we live with the fact that we don't know our ancestry, that there's a, a, a very sharp knife that cut across the Atlantic when we were on slave boats coming across. And, and so, and we took on our slave owners' names. And so for me to have a name that goes back so far and for the Dominican history being what it is in sense of, um, you know, some of the slaves were able to keep their names, then it just opened up a Pandora's box in terms of my identification. And so, and I, I, I am extremely privileged to have such an ancient name because you'll find that with most um, Caribbeans and African-Americans, just by virtue of the transatlantic slave trade, that we don't have a history that goes back more than two or three generations. 
So that's why I love philosophy. It's in my heart. And that's why it was easy for me to do a master's degree and to do it in kind of Greek ethics and philosophical ethics, because it actually was a, a, one of, a birthplace of my identity as well in a new way. And to bring that back to my family as a gift to say, do you know this is what our name means? And they're like, no, you know, because none of them had done philosophy at university. And they're like, what? What do you mean? And so that was a, that was a, so that's why it's, a, it's actually quite um, personal. It's quite intimate why I chose philosophy because it was actually part of my, my development. Wonderful. That, that is actually, well, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan and actually I've been studying philosophy since my uh, younger adult and I'm a writer as well. So I, I want to touch that because that, that is, um, so I think you've been touching two areas on your career that are quite unique, uh, actually three, because in one end is this philosophy and ideas. Um, the second is the entrepreneurial and corporate world in terms of business and further as well, the work in ambassador as an ambassador and as well highlighting the project like the the the, the awards and the, the black history awards and, and the black uh business awards which touched a lot of different things so yes. how do you bridge all these different things because it's something that i love to do but very few people do and especially from your background which like you mentioned from philosophy to work with big corporations but as well creating platforms to empower business and people that are, um, uh, of course, coming from a cultural background that unfortunately has a lot of challenges, but as well that is so wealthy and so beautiful that, that sometimes people forget that. So I'd like to hear a bit of that bridge that you do. Yes, most definitely. I think, you know, it is, um, it was, a, I, on one hand, you know, you have this love of philosophy, but on the other hand, you know, I also had this thing in my head, very practical. I love, I, I always loved money. Mom will always tell you, you know, this girl, like she, I, 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 I remember I, when I was a little kid, I used to set up a Winnie the Pooh table outside of my house and sell things from the house. I was always into commerce and um, economics. And so she will say it's no surprise that mom, that Melanie became a management consultant and a management consultant, you know, I, I had to decide, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor. I don't necessarily want to be a lawyer. I like business problems and money. And so that's why management consultancy and working for a big four consultancy was part of my dream. Um, that means that I also, as part of management consultancy, it's client services. So I was literally working for different clients, solving different business problems. And it's, so for me, it's no surprise that I am, I wanted some, it, it was management consultancy was a perfect merge of the considerations that I had in the back of my head. So I wanted to solve problems. That's what philosophy does. It helps you kind of solve, articulate problems, frame them, jump on each side of the problem and approach it from the other person's perspective. Um, you know, just in the fact, every assignment, that's what you have to do, right? You have to analyze the text then jump in and challenge it and, and be able to articulate your thoughts. So, but on the other hand, I was also, you know, a woman from humble circumstances and I, I wanted to lift myself out of that. And so management consultancy being a professional service and, and you, know, you know, and it's a, you, you make quite a good salary being a management consultant. So it was kind of a merge of the two, right? Being able to jump into the client's perspective, solve problems, and then also be able to make shed loads of money because that was actually critical to me. I didn't, I didn't want to just kind of, volunteer i didn't want to be in um kind of in the charitable sector because 
I didn't have the freedom or liberty to do so. I had student loans coming out of my yin yang. <laughs> so, that, so that's why um, I was so grateful. I started working at um, a bank in Canada while I was in university. And then they gave me a role afterwards, after I graduated. And then I, I moved over to um, consulting and, and consulting for financial services firms. And I would say that that's the reason, one of the reasons why the awards are successful is because both myself and my co-founder are client services. So she's a lawyer, but she's now CEO of Morgan Stanley. Um, and I am a director at Accenture. And we, that means that we don't only just work in business, but we work with multiple businesses. And that means that we are able to tap into our networks and also tap into knowledge of what is how business works in order for us to make the awards grow. So to me, it actually makes perfect logical sense. But I think to everyone else, it'd be like, wait a minute, you did a degree in philosophy and then you're in business. And now and then you started your own, then you started your own business and you work with large corporates and you work with small businesses. How does that work? And I'm like, actually, it kind of works. <laughs> it kind of works in my small little mind in my in my world, you know. But it's not a small little mind. It's a wonderful because I think um, I want to touch this before we go to the other areas of your achievements. But I think this is quite unique because first of all, we are in a in a very crossroad part of history because we have all this technology and we have all these advances with big corporations like the ones you mentioned. Like Century is one of the leading consultant companies, JP Morgan's, and all these big organizations are achieving fantastic things, but we have still a lot of disparity, but it's a paradox because we have the ideas as well. So in terms of ideas, we are in the most advanced stage of history of mankind. So I would like to, as a teacher as well, and as well in terms of um, the way you've been bridging, because of course working for big corporations, but as well teaching and you continue always to teach, it's quite demanding because you need to be very, very disciplined to keep the teaching and I respect that a lot. I've been doing that and actually I had to stop at a certain while. Um, and I think keeping the teaching in one hand, keeping students, which is very demanding, very exhausting. And at the same time, uh, keeping the career, which is very as well um, ambitious, but as well quite difficult because not everyone can keep a career like yours. So how did you manage this bridge between special the career in education and the career on the corporate world? Because I'm, I'm particularly interested, and I think it's a great example for people listening to us, special students, because you should not take the ideas out and should bridge, which I think is a great uh, inspiration. Most definitely. I think you're right. It is such a challenge. And um, for me, every new enterprise or every new initiative, you do have to give it the time in the beginning to set it up and to make it work. But then you should also be working towards making it a process so that it's easier to manage and that you're, it's just kind of almost running itself. So with uni classes, for example, yes, you have to keep it current every year, but every year I teach the same course. It's leadership and management, fourth year. You know, and I, I so the, the core theory of leadership doesn't change the application in terms of world events, um, in terms of new things, I, I keep abreast of because I'm a human being, number one. So, you know, we're all in this leadership game together. Uh, but then number two, it's also because it's my interest area. So I'll be reading about it anyway. So I, I you're right. Teaching is really demanding in, in the sense of you have to kind of give your all to your students, particularly 
you know, in a time when we're teaching online and digitally, like you have to figure out new, fresh ways of engaging with them and making sure that they are engaged um, with the content. But on the other hand, um, I think that it is, I, I've always been a fan of, of keeping myself sharp by number one, consistently being on a learning journey. So kind of being a student of life, but, and then also number two, uh, changing it up. So that means that I'm trying to use my brain in new and, and fresh ways uh, and, and, and making sure that I'm not just kind of solely focusing on you know, solving problems for clients, um, that I'm giving myself a way to kind of give back to younger people. So that means either teaching or running programs or it's about um, kind of thought leadership and, and my writing as well and, and writing the book. So I think, um, as long as I kind of hold to those two principles that number one, I'm on a learning journey and number two, that I, sorry about that, the cockerel. It's nice. It's, nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little animal farmish over here. <laughs> it's a little animal farmish over here. Um, <laughs> I, um, as long as I kind of adhere to the principles of keeping myself fresh and also making sure that I set it up so that it's almost a process in my life rather than it being kind of a constant kind of investment of newness, then, uh, then I, I have been okay. But, you know, it, it's amazing to me. One of my mentors, he's like, look, you know, with board roles, for example, you know, you should really stay there for three or four years. Like, you really shouldn't be doing it any longer than that. Uh, because again, like there's a, a point where the creativity is exhausted, where you're just kind of an old hat, where you're not really contributing your best. And so that's why I, you know, I still, I have to change it up sometimes. You just got to change it up. You have to, or else it just doesn't work. You know? <laughs> it doesn't uh, work. So. Not completely. So, so I want to touch uh, precisely because one of uh, the the glues in terms of all your strategy is precisely the concept of leadership and the concept of management. Uh, you have that in your personal consultancy and as well in the corporate jobs that you have and as well in the Black British Business Award. So, and as well, everything you've been doing. So how do you see leadership now and management? Because I think this is, I think leadership is in a massive crisis. Like you mentioned, um, especially with the, the world right now going through COVID, of course, but as well uh, through the, the challenge of digital transformation, the challenge even with these cultures and as well the, I think especially the last five years of the division that was created around the world, especially by, I'm not, we're not going to politics too much, but by all the disruptive that came out of that, but as well it, it touched the, the, the wound. And when it touched the wound, you can actually understand, okay, there's a lot of things we need to tackle. Yes. So I would like to start first with the, obviously leadership and management and then going to the, the issues that are arousing all that because I think your, both your education touched that from an ethical background and philosophical background but like you mentioned with an entrepreneurial capacity and the man management capacity the very few leaders have. Hello? Can you hear me? So I was, I was just asking, how do you bridge the management and leadership uh, in, the, in the light of the things that are context? Uh, you know what? I, I think that management and leadership are a consistent thread. And um, throughout all of what's happening, um, and, and there's a flexibility that's, that you have to 
foster, obtain, and then foster in order to kind of be able to handle the things that are, that are coming at you. Um, it, it's been a really tough year. It's been a really tough year. And I think that we, um, you know, I think one of the problems with leadership and management is that we kind of, I don't know. I don't even know. Like, it's such a big question that you just asked me this. I don't even know how to even answer that, to be fair. It no, but is... Let's go through, for instance, the way you tackle this in your course. Just in my course. That was really, yeah. really easy. That was really straightforward. I wouldn't say it's easy. Number one, um, flick, you know, you're used to it online and you're used to an in-class environment. So you have to do it online. I was really lucky because I've been on you know, the news several times in terms of debate shows. I had delivered an online course before my own personal online course. I'd worked with videographers. So it was really easy for me to just flip over to screen only. And also, I didn't realize how much training I had received, it, it, just in regards to being able to say, you know, not looking at your screen, but looking at the, the you know, the camera or uh, the, the kind of the tone and flow, my camera angles, my, my lighting, I, I had it really easy because I had already considered all of these things over the prior few years where oh man, I'd gotten on some Zoom calls with people and I was like, bloody hell, I, you know, it was tough. So to be able to keep that engaging by virtue of the channel for my students, that was much easier for me. In regards to being a part of a global, you know, being in a global pandemic, as well as in an extremely kind of divided uh, society politically, then because I was in a leadership course, I was teaching a leadership course, it was literally leadership in action. Like, act, like it, was, it was almost a gift to my students. They had examples that, you know, they didn't have to look back at Winston Churchill or look back at, you know, you know, or Hitler to say, this is what, you know, here's an example of what leadership looks like. We literally had leadership examples coming out of our ears. We, there was, and so it was an opportunity for the students to be able to bring it close to home. So um, as part of their, their projects, it wasn't just about kind of going into text. All they had to do was look at the news and say, well, this is what's happening in this country. This is what's happening in my country as well, because I have quite an international student base. So it was actually a leadership gift and they were able to take the theories that we were learning and apply it directly to the stuff that is happening right now. How, you know, what's different about how, you know, Sweden and Germany, New Zealand and the US and how they're approaching COVID, you know, what do, what do elections look like, general elections look like, the role of kind of PR and marketing on, in a leadership battle, in a leadership race. It was, it was just, it was a leadership and management course gift last year, because it was just so many examples. And so this year, again, I'm just in the midst of starting my course next week. And again, there's just so much that they can learn from, like, how do you manage resources, limited resources. So how do you manage a vaccine delivery? How do you prioritize? How do you, um, you know, in more, in more um, uh, kind of right wing countries, how do you enforce that the good of the one is for the good of the all? Um, 
and, and then the behavior of one impacts the all, particularly when you're more right-leaning economically and socio-politically, then actually those two kind of buck up right against one another. So you, it, it's really, really, it's, it's amazing actually, the leadership theory. It's good times, good times. No, that's completely, and I think it's yeah. going to be more relevant than ever, yeah. So, and then uh, coming to the Black British Business Awards, um, and as well all the relationship uh, initiatives or related initiatives. So, can you tell us about the history? Because it's been a very high profile initiative. And why did it create it? How did it context that? Because that has been uh, a movement that has been very strong and is creating a lot of dynamics and things. And I think it's more important than ever, especially in the light of what happened last year with the Black Lives, Ma Lives Matter, which to be honest, I was in shock that we still have to have that to look at even what happened yesterday that is happening this week. Uh, I don't want to go too much in police, but what's happening in the United States is very scary in a lot of ways. Um, so I'll, yeah, let's go through the history, the more positive part of it, but I would like to hear this and how do you came up to create all this fantastic initiative and all the dynamics around that. Yes, yes. I, so, you know, unfortunately, you know, you, you do see that when I started the awards, uh, eight, Nine years ago, um, eight years ago, I saw that I had been exposed to so much in regards to kind of the wealth and the breadth and the depth of what Black looked like in the UK. Um, so, but I wasn't seeing it on my screens. And I, you know, you would see no evidence of this in kind of in the news you would only have a one-sided um, kind of image of what Black looked like. And so the Black British Business Awards was a means to highlight role models, to highlight the contribution that the that Black people were having to the UK economy, because typically they were being positioned as a drain. And so I, um, in starting the awards, I truly had it kind of, for me, in my heart, it was about economic empowerment. Uh, Sophie and I joined together with Max and, and, and Karen from Every Woman. And so two white women to, to create, to found the awards. And we all brought all of our knowledge and experience to bear. So Max and Karen, they had had experience of running awards programs. Um, you know, it, it, it changes everything. It's like, who are we speaking to? The organizations in, in headship and leadership in the organizations, it was primarily kind of not black people, right? So our messaging, our, um, the, the executive sponsors, the people who were paying the check for the awards, it was about speaking in their language, speaking their voice and, and, and getting kind of, the, kind of the first allies, the, all of the ally things that we were doing um, together. So it took off from the relationships that we had and that's it that's and that's it really it was based on our corporate relationships and based on our vision and dream and so now we have um expanded from just being an awards program to having leadership and development programs talent accelerators working with organizations to accelerate their black and asian talent and then also we published research as well so it's great no, it's amazing. And I think uh, um, 
you're quite humble, but I would like to hear a bit some of the achievements because of course the awards have been having a massive impact first in terms of shifting the importance, like you mentioned, of uh, attention towards the contribution of the black community, but as well, it's, it's what I love is about women as well, and as well is about creating a dynamic community that creates a lot of positive impact, so, and the impact in general. So can you tell us some of the achievements? Because of course, in the last eight years, you did a lot of benchmarks from, from reaching the Royal Family in the UK to, to a lot of work, some of the biggest organizations. And this created as well a, a year dynamic to highlight and, and celebrate culture and celebrate achievement, uh, but in a community that, of course, like you said, is sometimes very invisible, at least in the mainstream media, so especially in the UK. Yeah, most definitely. I think that it is, um, you know, first off, we celebrate, you know, at least a good um, 50 to 75 kind of finalists every year. And these are just absolutely amazing people. So we have, plat and when we see, when we say we just celebrate them as finalists, it, there's a whole process in regards to not just kind of celebrating them at a ceremony, but we are honestly, we give them media training, we push them out, and so that they become experts on our news channels. And so, and they, they in turn, their platforms rise and grow, and we push them out with all of our kind of our extensive media contacts. So that's, we're, we're creating a network and a web. Um, and that's been fantastic. So if you think about that over the last eight years, then that's like, you know, almost a thousand people that have been pushed out into the, the limelight who've pre previously been hidden. And then we also have our, our middle research and our research with Cranfield's Women to Watch. And so again, just, we, you know, people are looking at the boardroom, people are looking at recruitment, but not a lot of people were looking at what was going on at an organization's, like, within an organization. Like, why is it that there was a drop off that they were able to recruit Black and Asian talent, but they weren't able to keep them. And so publishing the research with Bloomberg and the new version out this year with, with JP Morgan, then that was absolutely, you know, it was absolutely critical to move into a space of not just being celebratory, but actually being an organization with impact. And then we published the report of Black and Asian Women, Women to Watch report with Cranfield, um, where we looked at um, Black women um, and Asian women who were set up to be, um, who were on, on route to being in the boardroom so that we were opening up the boardroom pipeline. We've launched uh, BAME in the boardroom as well in association with Deloitte and the Deloitte Academy. So that is a, uh, where the chairman of organizations, they nominate their top two uh, kind of Black and Asian um, members of talent with uh, members of their organization and then go through a, a, a kind of governance onboarding program so that they can be, become part of the executive board within one to two years. Then we have also launched Mentor Mondays, which is for our younger set, so that we're able to teach, some of the, teach them some of the learnings and some of the guidance that we needed to have when we kind of, in terms of progressing, progressing to the higher echelons of a company. And then of course, we also have a talent accelerator. So that's approximately kind of 50 companies, 70, 70 to 80 participants and working with organizations and working with an inclusive ecosphere around each kind of black and Asian member. 
so that of, of talent of the, within an organization so that we're able to help an organization grow and foster its black and Asian talent. So we expanded from being just a ceremony to being um, also programs with, with impact that help organizations grow and foster diverse talent bases. And all, some of the key things that we've, you know, that I'm really proud of as well, some of our media partnerships, we've had media partnerships with the Evening Standard, with the Telegraph. Um, so quite huge in the sense of, you know, you don't necessarily see a lot of Black and Asian programs having sponsors like that. And then also being featured on um, our news channels as well. And um, so the BBC and ITV, they featured us and just really grateful that people have taken us on board. Um, we still get the pushback, certainly, but it's been a good, it's been good generally. Well, it's been a fantastic journey and I think you're yeah. quite uh, humble on that because it's, it's, a, it's, well, first of all, it's one of the biggest initiatives in terms of uh, awards in the UK and highlighting this issue thing. So one of the things I want to touch, and of course it's a sensitive topic, so guide me on that, is how do you see, so I think there's a lot of a challenge right now, especially with all the things related with the Black Lives Movement, especially last year that has been, of course, a massive thing that touched all the world, but as well, in, in the, a lot of movements that were restricted by a lot of um, especially right-wing extremists. And I think we have this division on this. So in terms of the, the UK and especially the awards, did you felt that, because I know that the business, actually, ironically, I think the business world has been behaving much better. If you see what happened in, even in the last days and the last uh, months, in terms of this, the business world is trying to make a big change in terms of looking at these topics and learn with it, especially most of the business. You mentioned big brands like Accenture, um, uh, Deloitte, uh, JP Morgan, and uh, Morgan Stanley, and all these big brands that are really making an effort. So in your work, both with the startups and SMEs that are part of the British Business uh, Awards, and as well entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs in particular, what have we been seeing the biggest challenge they're facing? And as well, some of the things that you would be highlighting for people listening to us around the world. I think um, that's a huge question. Um, I think some of the, even though there has been intention setting, that we're at the place now where intentions have been set before. So there's a little bit of fatigue in, in the sense of, okay, we've talked about this for long enough. What are we actually going to do about it? Or let's just stop talking about it. So I think that, you know, we're at the point where um, organizations, most organizations have set intentions to have a diverse workforce, a diverse progressive workforce for all of their members. But there are very few organizations, particularly in the UK and the US that are doing it well in terms of the large organizations like FTSE kind of 300, FTSE 250 equivalents. So organizations are in a different place. Um, they're, they're not, although it's been made, made, it's much more public, they haven't had much of an opportunity to really change things within the pipes of their organization. So we're talking about recruiting more, um, retaining, promoting, and seeing in leadership a representative workforce across all of the diversity spheres, not just ethnicity. We have found, so, you know, there are a few things. Number one, that data is absolutely critical. Um, the, and so organizations are really trying to mostly get their heads around data capture, um, identification of key groups within their workforce, within their walls. 
And unless you have that, then most uh, then initiatives and targets, sorry, initiatives, targets can't be, and, and uh, targets or goals can't be set. And quite frankly, you can't measure the impact or the success of any initiative. So I think that there have been a lot of initiatives in the past. People had a lot of good intent, a lot of goodwill, uh, but quite frankly, uh, very few um, organizations have really, you know, amped the dial, really switched the dial in terms of their diversity efforts across all of the diversity spheres. We see that the numbers for women have gone up, certainly, but, um, you know, for the amount of effort and for the amount of women in the world and the amount of women in the workforce, then there's still a ways to go, but organizations have, are getting there. So I would say for any organization, some of the key challenges, some of the key areas that they'd want to focus on is ensuring that they have data. And when I mean data, I don't necessarily mean just quantitative. I'm talking about qualitative data around what the experience is, is of working in, within their organization and how do they actually progress, retain, promote um, diverse talent. Uh, that's number one. Um, number two, really opening up the discourse and narrative of, of kind of race and ethnicity. If we're talking about race and ethnicity, really opening up that space so that people become more comfortable with the terminology and people become more comfortable and really creating kind of a whistleblowing culture. That's really important as well so that, you know, they understand that this is a culture that does not accept microaggressions. It does not accept bullying. It does not accept racism, institutional racism is being stamped out because that will go a long way in terms of fostering a community or and a culture of, of inclusion. So, um, and then also it is about leadership making a commitment, but not just the very top echelons of leadership, but it actually has to be at the leadership level throughout the organization. So for large organizations, again, I would say that every single person, every people manager needs to be empowered and comfortable around the kind of the narrative of inclusion, what that looks like. How do they make sure that every single person on their team is included and, and, and invited to progress and stay and, and kind of achieve within an organization? All of those things, um, you know, organizations are now kind of working through how that is going to, um, how their efforts are going to increase in 2021. That's, uh, and I think this is amazing, and we will take notes on this because I think this is important to highlight. So one of the six areas at least that the, the um, like British uh, awards have been highlighting, one of them is the, the BAME Action Research, then mm -hmm. the Talent Accelerator, then is the, the BAME in the, the boardroom, then the mentor holidays, and as well the sponsor roundtables and the awards. But especially, I'm particularly interested in the mentor Mondays, and the the um, the, the boardroom initiative and the talent accelerator. So, can you tell us a bit about this? Because I think this is, I think for me, one of the things I learned, even me, is the mentorship is key. Both for me to learn with the likes of you, and a lot of one of the reasons I I set up this podcast series is because I want to share knowledge and learn. Because we have, like you mentioned, we have to have continuous learning. But especially when it comes to business, we do so much mistakes that we have to continuously learn and as well adapt. So I would like to hear about this effort specific in the context of the awards. Okay, great. Well, you know what? I'll start when so post the awards or when we in the second year of the awards, Sophie and I were, you know, really wanted to make an impact on the business world that it wasn't 
about a, you know, three hour kind of ceremony and dinner, that it was about, you know, really changing the world for the organizations that sponsor us and um, the, the Black and Asian employees that had been celebrated. And so we know that, you know, any good initiative really needs to start off with data and started off with the research. And so we, um, we launched a research that the research project, the middle research, there were other organizations already focusing on boardroom talent. There were other organizations already focusing on recruitment. And what we found was that organizations were not focusing on, wait, <laughs> you're focusing on how to get them in, you're focusing on how to get them to the top, but you're not focusing on where the actual crux point is because you find that in between the ages of 28 and 35, that's where we lose black and Asian employees. That's where you start to see that their career starts to level off, that the ethnicity pay gap becomes particularly acute. So that's where we wanted to focus our attention, the middle, the messy middle is what we called it. Um, and we call it the middle research. And it was about what is going on within the company culture that is preventing black and Asian colleagues as progressing at the same rate as their white peers and so we came that's and from that research then we designed several interventions and that was how we developed the rest of the programs number one we knew that ex talent acceleration works so when you second and focus on talent uh, in a specific way addressing their needs then they often not only catch up but they surpass their their colleagues and so we said look this is what we um propose that we will have a talent accelerator where we not only are speaking to the black and asian talent about um, giving them the the tools to progress more swiftly through their organization but then we're also looking at the ecosphere around them so in any every, any given employee in a large organization will always have several people that are responsible for their career trajectory right they have line managers they have directors they have maybe like HR managers as well. Like they have a bunch of people around them. And so in our program, what's innovative about it is that it's not just kind of an individual going off to get some leadership training. It's about involving the whole ecosystem because, you know, I had been engaged, I had been involved in two accelerator programs and they worked amazingly at, at giving me the confidence to navigate organizations and, and, and navigate to my own path. And so we knew that that worked from our research. Mentor Mondays, we were conscious that um, from the accelerator, we knew that quite frankly, you have to be strategic about your career from the beginning. You know, like you can't just kind of waltz in. <laughs> you have to start thinking about what to do with your career. How are you going to progress? Where are you going? Who are the people that you need to meet? Who are the people you need to influence and work with? And Mentor Mondays, it was for a younger set. So it wasn't the middle, it was more so you've just started off in the workforce and you're really just kind of getting to grips with it. And so that's why we have sessions to, that are really practical, like piece of paper, workbook, practical, um, where, we start, where we start to teach people how to navigate your career strategically in a large organization. And then BAME in the boardroom, it, um, we knew that with both women and ethnic minorities, uh, a lot of confidence is given when you go through a course. And a lot of people will say that they're not prepared to be on a board, they don't know how to be on a board. Um, and, and, that, and, and because they don't know it, then they, I don't know, they, 
they, you know, they just prevent themselves from doing it. <laughs> and so that's why we worked with Deloitte, who already had the Deloitte Academy and the Women on Boards program to change, um, to implement the BAME on Boards program. So exactly the same as the Women on Boards program, but with a Black and Asian focus so that we are helping with um, corporate, teaching them corporate governance, introducing them to um, board chairs, um, uh, having kind of fireside chats in terms of key board governance issues of the day. Uh, it's, it, so all three of those programs address different parts of the pipeline and they help organizations progress, retain and promote their Black and Asian talent. And then of course, we also have the ceremony. So we know right now that we have, you know, hundreds of people coming through our programs on the annual basis and really making a change by just creating kind of a group of gladiators. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And I think that this is key for anything we do, especially related with uh, the future of business and, and the future of, um, of SMEs and, and as well the entrepreneurship that is necessary to keep this going. So I want to touch, so you touch data and one of the questions I have here is, um, so as someone who comes from a philosophical background and there's as well all the, the, la the layers of ethics and then as well leadership and management, but we're going through a massive challenge right now. We're going through a challenge that is uh, in terms of uh, the way data is becoming the biggest driver of society but as well the way data is used by machines and by uh, especially artificial intelligence to change. And this has a huge um, challenge when it comes to digital transformation for society in general, especially right now they are all, we are all working remotely, teaching and doing most of the stuff, but as well in terms of leadership, management and diversity. And for instance, a lot of the, the efforts and that this is a couple of studies in terms of technology are right now highlighting that a lot of the, the because a lot of the technology is called by men that is creating diversity issues and as well gender issues and there's actually a lot of case studies even IBM admitted that Apple Google um, so it's, it's one area that as someone that has uh, quite a lot of knowledge on this area so how do you see this and is there any areas that you suggest from your experience dealing with all these concrete initiatives is there any area that I suggest? When it Can comes you... to directions in terms of, uh, one thing is, that is bringing these topics for management and leadership. I'm asking more in terms of the technology because this is the big challenge right now is because let's say, let's look at social media. If social media is driven by, normally by the, the people that are more aggressive, which is normal the case, they will get the biggest voice. And that has been actually what has been happening the last four years with all the disruption worldwide that created even deaths in the last couple of days and a lot of di disturbance in a lot of ways. And when you look at the code, especially all the way we put the data, you can manipulate the data to disrupt populations. You can manipulate the data to disrupt entire countries, but you can as well do it for, for creating more gender balance and diversity. So I don't know if you've been studying this, but it's a big challenge right now when it comes to technology engineering how do you bring diversity and gender equality for or at least gender balance to the, the developing of technology and to the management of data because this is the biggest thing that is going to challenge uh, society in the next 10 years and is going to be probably creating the biggest revolution in history of mankind 
Okay. Yeah, and I think, um, and sorry, the reason why, the, the answer is quite simple to me, is that you do have to hire diverse development teams. It's, it is that, and you also have to empower them with a, a, a the, um, the, the power for them to bring their diverse voice to the table and bring their difference to the table. It gives me a lot of jokes, actually, because everyone, uh, they, we, we had this, um, this conversation in regards to um, diversity and product development, and it was across the board, including kind of technology, but also just in regards to FMCGs, you know, and, and toothpaste, for example. And everyone's just like, well, how do you do it? How do you do it? And I was like, I don't know, like, maybe I'm just being too simple about it. But I, you know, if I think about management consulting, right? Let's just say we propose um, a, a client has a goal and they want a team on the ground to figure out how they're going to meet that goal. They have to like double their income, say, in a year. Me as the engagement manager, I am not just going to go by myself. And certainly I'm not going to just hire a bunch of Melanie looking and Melanie thinking consultants. I have a data specialist. I have a technology specialist. I have a, you know, someone who is well-versed in kind of marketing and kind of usually if I'm looking at a graduate student, that means that they're really good in terms of communications and English and kind of communicating and kind of stepping into the person's shoes. I have about four different profiles that are very different from one another to figure out the solution, making sure that all of their voices are represented. So making sure that from a financial perspective that the data is there, making sure that from a technology perspective that the, you know, that the options are there. And so I just don't understand, maybe because of that background, it's really easy to me that if you were going to have to create a new kind of, I don't know, shampoo, <laughs> then why around the product development in the product development process, why wouldn't you have a diverse kind of, whether it be acutely, it could be a focus group, or, you know, if it's more, more strategic and embedded in your organization, you have a product development team that reflects the diverse audience with which you need to serve and engage. So for technology, the, we all know that the problem is, is that diverse um, technology firms are horrifically unescapably, ridiculously at this point of our lives, not inclusive and not diverse. We know this. So the solution for me is quite simple. Hire diverse product development teams, hire diverse developers, because they think in a different way, they are bringing different experiences. One of the big social media platforms a few years ago was ridiculously exposed after in the investigation of the um, the election, the the Trump election, and it was found that you know people were able to infiltrate the the platform and pose and have fake Black Lives Matters kind of posts and to and for me that was just a signal saying wait did you you don't have any Black people on staff because they would have been able I looked at that ad and I saw that is not from a black person. <laughs> what, what is that? That's just inflammatory. It's ridiculous. But I could tell that there was no one on your team that was black because they would have been able to say, actually, that's not a real ad. That's not a real post. That's not a real profile. But because you have no one on your team, then you, you let it slip. They let it slip. They just thought, oh, it's just another black thing. Same thing with you know um, phones and mobile phones. 
and why there are no there there were no women developing phones and so all of a sudden you create these huge phones and then some you know some women do have larger hands i have really long fingers so i'm okay with my iphone 12 pro max <laughs> but some of the phones are just huge and so you literally just didn't even think that women wanted to use big phones you didn't even test them you didn't even have them hold the phone <laughs> that's great like in this day and age are you kidding me like fine you figure it like you know this but so then hire a woman what's the problem like, it's not that deep you're acting like we're not 52 percent of the planet like just so to me the solution to me is actually really simple like if you don't if you look around your team and you see a whole bunch of people that think like you look like you um do the same things that you do in the spare time then that means you have a problem <laughs> fix it hire somebody because most of these large tech firms um large social media firms they people want people are running to work with you they are running your brands are so strong you don't have a recruitment problem you don't have a recruitment problem go find somebody put an ad out on that <laughs> facebook put an ad out on facebook <laughs> you're hiring more black people you'll get the you'll get the applications <laughs> and if you don't yeah, want to hire yeah. It is common sense to me. So I just don't understand, you know, if you're looking at me, this is where kind of flipping the script a little bit and looking at me as a, I know what the university numbers are looking like. I know demographically what's happening to our higher education schools. You know, women, ethnic minorities, they are graduating at a greater rate and they also graduating um, what's called with, with really good grades. The pipeline at graduate level is is big, so I just did a um, a, a talk for an engineering association, and it was at a it was a graduation, and I was like, there are a whole lot of Black and Asian people in this room, so tell me what pipeline problem you have again. So if I'm seeing what the numbers are, if I'm seeing that there is one point in the year where 56% of a graduating class, a, a honors business graduating class were women. So tell me exactly what happens in between graduating at 56%, one of our best business schools in the world, 56% women, and then all of a sudden you're looking at what? No women on boards? Are you kidding? What the hell happened? <laughs> what did you guys do to them? How come you're not recruiting them? How come you're not keeping them? And so you're going to say, why? Well, it's because women have babies. Like, uh, really? Most women want to come back to work. You know, we, I, I was in, um, uh, I worked with my friend uh, Lisa for the, um, um, a, a book kind of in terms of what companies spend, and we were looking at the stats on what companies spend approximately 40,000 to recruit a person, to recruit anyone. And so why wouldn't you just keep the 40,000, you know, close to heart and then bring women back after they are, they go on maternity leave? There's a reason why women go, don't come back after maternity leave. You think it's because, oh, well, because they want to stay and take care of their babies. And in some cases it is. But how about it's because y'all weren't that great in the first place, so they were looking for an excuse to leave. How about that? <laughs> 
maybe you didn't make it very easy for her to come back to stay included as part of the team for people to know that she's going on mat leave but she's coming back because we love her and she loves us there is a whole lot of things wrong in regards to how we treat and promote talent but quite frankly the the question that you ask if we go right back to the beginning it is I don't, I literally do not understand why we are not hiring for diversity in some of our key kind of product development kind of processes. That's what diversity means. It's not about just having a workforce. It's about also in the strategic areas of the workforce. Why would you, you know, not test for, why would you only kind of test your products against with men and not women? Why would you test your products if you know that it's 15% of your population, why would you not test and make sure that Asian hair is represented or black hair is represented when you create that shampoo? Why would you, when you're developing a temperature gun or a thermometer gun, why would you only test it against white skin and not test it against darker skin? So therefore your thermometer gun doesn't work because it doesn't detect darker skin tones. If you learn that, why wouldn't you do it? And it's it just amazing to me. I remember a few years ago when uh, the high-speed trains were being developed, a new high-speed train was being developed for a big uh, kind of airline firm. I won't tell you guys who, but you can probably guess. And so this high-speed train had been bought by about five European countries. It was an amazing train. And the first country implemented it and the train was too big for the tunnels. <laughs> Just, so you would think, right, that the other, other countries would be like, oh, oh, wait a minute, if that happened in kind of Montreal, or if that happened in France, maybe that's going to happen over here. Can, can I tell you all five of those countries, like within two years of using the new train, like they still all have the same problem that the train was too big for the tunnel. Whose fault is that? Like, <laughs> Once you're the second or the third, I, I, we know where we are as an or as a as a planet, and so it just feels to me that organizations are not doing the work where they really can have impact so, uh, in regards to creating diverse products, diverse services, and particularly technology firms need to get diverse voices around the table when they are creating their products, when they are coding their products. And even if it's not hiring directly, like, God damn it, just have a focus group or something, Do you know, get a, just ask your black friends to come into a room and give them some dinner and just say, Hey, how's this product? <laughs> Don't you think, or am I just crazy? Am I, am I making it too simple? No, no, actually the, the simplicity. And I think the details as well. I think like you mentioned before, I think a challenge sometimes is that people try to overcomplicate complicate and as well, as a CEO, I see as well sometimes the challenge is that you are drawn on the details because you want to move forwards and you forget a lot of things that are really basic common sense. But as well is that if you are in a, in a bubble, which is a big challenge that we have right now, is these bubbles are very close. So if your bubble is just people like you, you don't care even to see outside of your bubble. So you start ostracizing all the bubbles and you create the bubble society, which is the biggest challenge that we're facing right now as a civilization. So that, I get that, that. Yeah. honestly, Dennis, like, let's, let, okay, let's just talk about, like, you're, we're talking about large, like, say, social media platforms, or yeah, large... No, those ones have no excuse. Those ones right, have no excuse. if your avatar includes it, make it happen. It's not that deep, unless, you know, like, 
It just, it's not that, I, it just drives me nuts because it's actually, I've seen, so last year, I think GSK included, you know, included or created a process or was there was an initiative to make their clinical trials more diverse, you know, for their products. So GSK, sorry, GlaxoSmithKline, they launched it in the US. That's what you got, you know, like people can do it. And we've been talking about- And they have an obligation, yeah. Yeah, but you know, I guess the examples are, are there. So I don't know. Weird. No, no but it, it's uh, that's why I wanted to highlight this because I think we need to repeat. Actually, the, if you go to the the history, repetere education is, uh, is 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 repetere is the word in Latin for education. It's about repeating, and I think you need to repeat because I think people forget these things. And I think for us, I'm working a lot with the diverse backgrounds, but sometimes if I go to some backgrounds, you have really a narrow minding that is very scary. So. Mm -hmm. I will, so I could go for one hour on this because I think especially how you put this in practice and I think we mentioned about the mentor, about highlighting this, and this is critical. So I want, I'm conscious of your time, we passed one hour, so I want um, probably my last two questions are related with your work. So you've been working a lot in, in the bridge between ideas, education, and then leadership and management and big corporation work, and as well increasingly now working as well in terms of the work with SMEs and the bridge between SMEs and big corporations. So from that work that you have, any examples of case studies that you want to highlight? Because I think that's, I think one of the things, at least I learned a lot with case studies, with small examples, like the, like you mentioned, the co concrete basic stuff. And I love as well that you're very practical. You, you make things done and all your career is about making things done which is very important as well, because a lot of people, especially academics, they stay on the clouds of the academic world and they forget as well that we have a society around us uh, for our children, yeah. for all of us. So I would like just some concrete case studies that comes both from your multiple career highlights or even a case study that you want to highlight or something that you want just to, to bring here. You know, um, it, well, I'm going to highlight a... Uh, uh, maybe not a case study, but just some examples of what great kind of business, uh, just how integrated we all are, um, particularly during crises such as pandemics or after the, the death of George Floyd last year in the U.S. We, um, I don't think, last year really brought home how, how integrated we, we all are. And um, working with SMEs last year, particularly, really highlighted how much SMEs rely on the, the, the supply chain that's afforded to them by large organizations. And so I remember um, there's an organization that was started last year of the 15%, it's a 15% club, but uh, it was after George Floyd really making an effort to foster growth for black small businesses. It called on retailers to dedicate 15% of their shop floor to black small businesses. And so you saw organizations such as Sephora or West Elm, the big furniture company saying, we are going to look to make sure that our supply chain is, is very diverse. What I, I love to see, like, I think most of the time when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we talk about the workforce. What we're seeing now 
is how do we um, not only engage with the workforce, but how do we make our diverse supply, how do we make sure that our supply chain is diverse? So how some of the scandals that are happening in the UK in regards to, and some of the accusations of cronyism that our government is, is, is kind of, is dealing with or is handling now is that there is not, um, it's not just about access to being an employee for an organization, it's access to opportunity in a real way. And SMEs are real, um, people are seeing the real reliance that our economy has on, on SMEs. Uh, most of the time we just see these huge brands, but actually, you know, we know that 99% of all companies are SMEs. So that's kind of one to 250. Um, in terms of a turnover. And I think that, um, unfortunately, the pandemic really made these relationships, kind of bring these relationships to light for us, that we don't just rely on large firms, that we rely on small businesses. And it's fantastic that, you know, large organizations such as kind of, you know, um, some of the big grocery retailers, they're saying, hey, we're going to come back and we're going, when we come back from this pandemic, we're going to do this in a more integrated way. We're going to do this in a more um, inclusive and diverse kind of way. And there is now a real consideration for not just kind of the large brands in our life, but then also real considerations of the, the smaller brands that we as customers can shop with, but then also that large organizations can include in their supply chain. I think it's a real um, it's a real opportunity for us to like the not just the digitization of small business, but actually the inclusion of small business and not just in the in the in our the supply chain of our economy. Do we still do small businesses still need more support? Certainly, certainly. Um, do does it need a, a hefty injection of diversity and inclusion? Certainly, the whole industry does. But we are seeing uh, there was a massive amount of progress in terms of um, kind of centering SMEs in people's minds as viable options last year that I'm really really hopeful for. You know, no, that that's uh, very precious, and I think I think this this kind of things is. Uh, I'm completely with you because that's one of my kind of career focus uh, is that I, I believe that we can only push the economy if we focus on these SMEs because let's say the world, most of the world population works and lives and survives because of SMEs. We have around 450 million or 430 million SMEs or micro SMEs in the world. And most of them is a family business, especially right now, of course, we are seeing all the challenge going forward and even, uh, both of us are partly as well micro entrepreneurs in the things we do in our own personal brands, which is in itself uh, a micro entrepreneurial part. So, um, Melanie, it's been a, a huge pleasure. So, I want to, and we take notes of all these things, and we're going to put links to both your website, uh, the, um, the, the awards page, and all the different things and some of the things that I highlighted here in the interview and notes. So, I would like just the last note. Um, so as someone that is very inspirational, but as well that been both teaching, both leading, and both as well inspiring a lot of people, what would be the notes that you send, and they have a small daughter, so that you send for young ladies and ladies around the world that are especially struggling with COVID, but as well everyone that can listen to us, because in the end of the day, 
everyone has responsibility because I think if you create a more empowering society, everyone can live better. And I think we have as well great positive things, but at the moment there's a lot of challenges. Oh man, that is a really tough question, Dennis. I think it's really, um, whew, uh, in this year, I mental health and wellness kind of took central stage as a, a leader or a teacher, even as a consultant, I, I was trained to kind of give, 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 and to the point where I was almost empty. And, and hence the reason why I'm, I'm here, um, because I, uh, I it, it's been a really tough year with um, deaths of, of friends and, and, and family due to, to COVID. Um, the, 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 the typical ways with which we restore our energy, whether it be kind of, in, you know, being with people, you know, going out to dinner, they're not afforded to us. Um, we're fairly isolated as, as individuals. And so it, it's really tough. And so I've had to, I'm not gonna lie, like this year, I, I've given grace on myself um, to, I've given grace to myself to really just take care of myself and, and make those little rituals. So waking up with the sun, I literally wake up before sunset. I, I think that's much easier to do in the UK. In here, that means I'm waking up, you know, at 4.30, 5 o'clock, and I am sitting in the sun. The only reason why I'm not right now working in the sun is because of the, uh, because of um, what we're recording. I didn't want all the, the bird noises to kind of distract us. But I, 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 this, uh, another year I would have given different advice, but this year it literally is about me just staying sane um, and, and using the opportunity to not just tap into myself, but actually have real conversations with people um, and, and, and really kind of connect with people. Um, so reaching out, even though yes, it is by Zoom or by electronic means or digital means, than actually taking the time to talk to people that I've always wanted to talk to, reconnect with people, and then reconnect with myself. And in using the opportunity that digital affords us to actually launch something. So you don't have some of the barriers to entry, like you know, commuting and things of the like, they're actually removed. But take advantage of what digital means, what um, digital is giving us. I think it's a beautiful and inspiring way as well. And I think you're right. I think probably this is the most important. I think if there was something that came out of this craziness about, and I'm sorry, my, my, uh, my praise for the people that uh, pass away. But the most important thing here is definitely we have to take care of ourselves and, uh, and as well, uh, because our mind is still where we live. So we need to find a way of balancing that and connect to the people that are dear to us. I want to thank you, Melanie. A lot of uh, inspiring and very, um, very powerful things that we have here in this uh, almost one hour now. And I want to thank you for this time. It's been a very honor and a pleasure as well. A lot of, uh, it makes me think about some of the details that you mentioned as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. See you guys thank soon. Thank you. Have Thanks. a great day. Cheers. Thank you.